Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line uh, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Uh, today we're going to do an interesting show. It's my first day back from vacation. I have some important things in the housekeeping. So if you are someone that usually skips it, please do not today. There's some things you're going to want to hear and know about in today's housekeeping. Um, but I decided to do kind of a different show than we've done in a long time. I'm going to talk today about shift versus end. There's a lot of people out there that look at uh, the prepper industry, the, the survival industry, the survival community, and think that we're all a bunch of end-of-the-world doomers and gloomers. I am not. I've always tried to make this show come from a very positive place with a clear dose of reality thrown in on top of it to keep us all grounded with actually being prepared for God knows what. And um, But I, I think that what we miss when we talk about the end of the world as we know it is the as-we-know-it part. So I'm going to talk about that today and uh, how that's happened many, many times and what it's meant to some other people and what we can learn from that and what we can do to be better prepared for it when it happens to us. Not Notice I did not say if, I said when. More on that in a bit, but as I said, there's some things in today's housekeeping. I'm going to start off with a very somber thing and something I want to uh, say something about. Maybe I'll do a tribute show to this guy in the future, maybe get some people that knew him well on uh, with some different little recordings about stories about him because there's tons of stories about this man, and I'm sure they'll grow taller as the days grow longer. Uh, but Ron Hood, who is not just a friend, He was like a long-lost brother that I met when I was uh, 37. So I say he's a brother. It took me 37 years to find that I was destined to cross paths with. Um, very, very close personal friend that had a recent battle with prostate cancer. Uh, and for all I know, from what I know so far, had pretty much beat it. Uh, went to bed, uh, not last night, the night before. Had the alarm set for 8 o'clock. And when the alarm went off, his wife woke up and he did not. And he had passed away in his sleep in the night. I'm not sure if it was a heart attack or, or what happened, but Ron is no longer with us in body, but he will be with us in spirit. For those that don't know who Ron Hood was, he was one of the true pioneers in the, uh, the, the, the survival, especially the wilderness survival world. Long before there was a Bear Gryllis or a Les Stroud running around on TV, Ron was out shooting his own DVDs and training people in the very survival skills that those later folks uh, took to mainstream media. And uh, I think Ron really is the pioneer when it comes to not so much knowing the skills and teaching the skills, but taking the skills and making them portable and making them available to other people. He was also a dear friend to the Spearco family. Um, we stood by each other through a couple different things, and the only reason we didn't spend more time together is he lived in Idaho and I lived in Texas. And uh, I'm sad for... All of the time we could have spent together and did not, and I'm grateful for the time that we did spend together. To those of you that know uh, that, that know Ron, um, you know what a loss he is. To those who did not, his work is available still and will be available for a long time to come. I'm sure his family could use the support, maybe pick up some of his DVDs uh, on his website. I'm sure that would help Karen and Jesse. Uh, Ron leaves behind a wonderful, beautiful wife named Karen who is also a personal friend, and a wonderful young son named Jesse, who I believe is around seven years old, six, seven, eight, somewhere in that range. Um, and he, of course, with a father like Ron, worshipped his dad. So please send your thoughts, your prayers, uh, and your, your just overall good intentions to Karen and Jesse. And know that uh, Ron is now wandering in a wilderness that is far more beautiful than anything we've ever seen here on our planet. Uh, so sorry to start out the first show back with that, but Ron is a great friend and brother and deserves something to be said here. Uh, he's been on the show a few times. I wish it had been more. And please take that as a lesson. There's plenty of things I wish I had done now with Ron that we didn't get to, um, that if we had gotten to, um, you know, those things would be here, and now they can never be. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. 
I was just gone for two weeks of vacation. You missed one day. Uh, the fact that sponsors help pay the bills, keep the lights on, is a big part of that. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self, but ShelfReliance. Like something you put stuff on because they are innovators in the food storage industry. But some of the coolest things to keep your food rotating and stored efficiently and effectively that you can find, like the Harvest uh, series of... Uh, Uh, food storage racks and the pantry series of uh, the consolidator series actually of food storage racks that are either small and able to fit in your pantry or your cupboard or great big ones like I have in my closet that can store over 500 cans of food for you and always let you eat what you store, store where you eat and rotate. Also have the Thrive brand of long-term food storage product, some of the best tasting food, food that I'd be happy to eat every day and yet has extreme long shelf lives like all of everybody else. You know, Mountain House, Yoders, people like that. So check out uh, ShelfReliance.com today uh, for great food storage products and great food storage food. Uh, next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. You know, silver's taken kind of a beating lately because it went up into a bubble, and that spells opportunity to me. I think now is the time to be buying some silver. I don't know that I'd be go dumping ten grand into it, but for your, you know, your typical monthly buys, two, three, four ounces, something like that, or better, um, I think that now is a great time to be doing that. I think we might see some further retraction in silver prices. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't claim to, um, but I do think that we're definitely in the buy range on silver right now once again. So do consider picking up some silver. And if you have a niece, a nephew, a son, a daughter, any little kiddo out there that you're going to pick up stuff for, uh, a little presents and what have you, send us some plastic crap from China, consider putting a real ounce of silver in that kiddo's hand. Have mom and dad put it away for the future. Explain how its value will grow, just like their value will grow over time. And make it a lasting investment and a lasting thing that touches the heart of the kid. That's a great thing you can do by investing in silver. All right, next up today, uh, I am running a uh, member support brigade sale while I'm away. I'm back. It will continue for two more days. The code word is vacation. You can get your first year of the member support brigade for only $35. I would appreciate that when we take a vacation. Things kind of fall off a little bit. Uh, that's This kind of helps keep things rolling with the show by running a sale. You can use that word vacation to, uh, to join online or use the form to mail it in. And if you are paying by silver, I'll do 14 months instead of 12 months with a silver payment. I can't discount an ounce of silver. It just doesn't work that way. All right. Um, last but not least, we did have a winner of the AR7 contest. I will announce her name, her name tomorrow. I don't know whether to just use first name or if she's cool with the last name being used. You'll have to talk to uh, Rob over at Ready Made Resources. We also blew away the 2500 unit bogey. And uh, I'm getting a rifle too, so I'll be doing a review on that. I'm setting up transfer for that now. Um, but that also means that Robert will be doing a um, uh, custom Rock River AR upper uh, in July. So we, we nailed that, and we're going to be able to, uh, to get that up for grabs for you next. And I'll be launching a contest sometime next week with Shelf Reliance as well. Uh, so I'm going to try to get the vendors putting in big prizes like this from now on and running two-week cycles of contests for you guys. So you guys can win some really cool high-dollar stuff. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. As I said, today I want to talk about kind of the global shift that I see coming uh, and, and understanding that even if I'm wrong about how it's going to come or why it's going to come, it's going to come. Um, I, I think that people just don't really get it in general when we talk about uh, Teotihuacan, all right, uh, the end of the world as we know it. Um, When we hear this, this end of the world as we know it concept, and, and, and it is the way it was probably originally intended, we think of the road warrior, or water world, or the day after, or any of these uh, classic Hollywood or made-for-TV movies where the world literally ends as we know it. There's some remnant of survivors left because without that there wouldn't be a movie. But the message is that humanity is wiped out. And it's just a global catastrophe. Everything collapses. We think of something like Patriots where the U.S. economy collapses. The entire thing descends into decay. The cities burn. The gangs go nuts until they run out of food. Then they die. And there's only you know this big war. and All of these types of things is what we think about. But We're always focused on the first part of this, the end of the world. But then there's the second half, as we know it. And the as we know it half is the more important half. And 
What I want to explain to you is the world has ended as people of their time have known it thousands of times. I, I want to put it this way. I want, and I'm not talking about just economic collapse here. So don't, don't try to link anything from today to some of the things I'm about to tell you. At one time, being a Roman citizen was the most advantaged status you could have in the world. There was nothing better than to be a citizen of Rome, no matter where you were in the in the known world anyway at the time. Not you know not in North and South America uh, in those primitive civilizations, which weren't that primitive. We'll get to that in a second. But if you were a Roman citizen anywhere from Samaria to the United Kingdom, the areas that we know of those today, uh, there was no more st- there was no greater status that you could have. It was the status in the world. The the saying was that all worlds lead all roads lead to Rome. Well, you know, at one time that was pretty much what they said about the Greeks, right? The Greeks were light years ahead of everybody around them, and with technology and communication and literature and, and, and the concept of democracy, the Greeks had an empire that rivaled close to what the Romans eventually had. Well, it wasn't just the Greeks and the Romans. How about the Aztecs? How about the Hopi Indians? And there were great Native American civilizations, and there were great civilizations all over the world. At one time, the Arabic civilizations were some of the most advanced there had ever been. Regardless of what you know, the media tells you about hating people because they're uh, Islamic, and they say it's not what we really mean, but it's what we really mean, right? Um, you know, the the Islamic nations at one time were, were light years ahead of their contemporaries with mathematics and science. The Chinese had their day. They may have another day again soon. So did the Japanese. There were great civilizations all over the world until these civilizations either collapsed under their own weight in the case of things like the Romans or what really started to tear apart great civilizations like the British Empire was as the world began to shrink and the world began to globalize and people began to communicate and it no longer would take you four months to get a message from London to Virginia. As we brought in things like the telegraph and telecommunications and things like that, things really began to fall apart for the old world empires. And then a new world empire arose, the United States, which harnessed and used this technology and harnessed and used economics to to basically rule the world. And we didn't rule the world the way the British did before us. We learned from the concept of having colonies everywhere and how much work that was and how that was seen as oppressive, and we did it in a softer form of tyranny. And it is a form of tyranny. I'm not saying that everything we did is bad. I'm not somebody that doesn't love my nation. I have extreme pride in being an American. Um, but there is no doubt that when we set up an economic system that said if you were in Brazil and you wanted to deal with somebody in Spain, that both of you had to convert your currency to dollars before you did it, got the whole world to buy into that, well, we created an advantage for ourselves. And just like prior civilizations, we can't expect things to continue the way that they were. Even in our desert southwest, folks, there were Indian tribes that had immense civilizations that we can see the remnants of today that created ways to harvest water in the desert that we're too stupid to do ourselves. We could do the same thing today and we haven't done it because we figured out that we can make things like the Hoover Dam. But, you know, we, we just don't think about all of the places where people have already done things that are almost impossible for us to imagine doing today for all our technology. The aqueducts of Rome would be... Now, it doesn't mean that putting pipes in the ground isn't a better way to do things, but can you see us trying to recreate that today? To build that today? Take a walk through New York City, folks. New York City. Especially the the midtown and uptown areas where some of the old churches and old buildings are. Stuff that's about 100, 150 years old. And don't just look at the architecture and the building and realize that, you know, 100 years ago they were able to build that building. Look at the outside of them. Look at the artwork on the building. One square foot of some of these old churches has artwork that would take weeks to months to create that was done 100 years ago. And the whole building is covered in it. That world ended. And it ended in what many call progress. My point is that no matter what time period we take a snapshot of, if we take a 100-year snapshot in time and we look at the following 100 years, 
the world dramatically shifted. And sometimes people were in the right place at the right time, and that shift was extremely beneficial to them. And many times they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that shift nearly destroyed them or left very little of them behind. Some of these old civilizations, they're not really gone. They, they shifted and morphed and changed. The Greeks, we still have Greeks. This is a Greek nation. Uh, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, more in touch with the reality, I guess, than we are because it's coming to a head faster there. But there's a Greek. If you want to find Greeks, you can find lots of them today. Uh, Romans are basically Italians, and we can find Romans today. Uh, and, and, you know, Rome is the capital of Italy, and we can go find those folks, and they're pretty happy. I mean, it's hard to find happier people than Romans and Italians. It really is. It's a great culture, a great society, but they're not really at the forefront of anything in the world anymore now, are they, other than maybe cooking. Well, certain types of cooking. But they're there. What about the Aztecs? Where are the Aztecs? They're gone. But they're not really gone. Their, their blood flows through the veins of people from, from northern Mexico to southern Latin America down into Panama. Um, they, they're not gone. They've just changed. They, they were absorbed and, and fell apart as a society, yet there's still remnants of them. The Hopi, they're still Hopi. They're very few, a remnant. But they also have, you know blended with the modern North American society. So all of these civilizations in some shape or form still exist, and some more than others. And what that tells us is that as we look at shifts, they're a strange thing. At times a shift will benefit us, sometimes they'll harm us, and sometimes they can all but destroy us. Some of them are tiny, some of them are so subtle, and some of them are absolutely massive. But sometimes it's a tiny shift. It's a little insignificant thing that happens at some far point in the world that doesn't seem to affect us that starts like a little pebble rolling down a hill accumulating snow. And in the end, it's an avalanche. And it started with that tiny shift that we've written off. The only constant in shifts, though, is they always occur. They never stop. We will always have to deal with shifts in the world. And that's a big part of why I do the survival podcast. It's more about the shift than the end. Because what's the shift going to be like? And we don't know. And the, the reality is we've come to a point in history that is unlike anything that's ever happened before. There's never been a point where there's been this many people on the planet. And the number of people is directly proportional to the gravity of disaster that can occur. In fact, there are more people alive right now alive, walking around, than all the people that ever lived and died from the first human being all the way up to 1950. Think about that. And maybe that number is 1900, I'm not sure. I'm pulling that one from my head. But if it's 1900, who cares? More people alive today than all the people that ever lived. How much potential for, for, for greatness is there because of that? And how much potential for suffering is there because of that? The two are actually equal. We have an equal opportunity to really move into something amazing. We have an equal opportunity to move into something detrimental. In fact, even if we move into something amazing, the shift may cause extreme misery while it occurs. And these are constants. These are things that have always happened. And the arrogance of modern society is that we look at something like the last hundred years and we use that to base our decision making on everything that we're going to do and everything that we're going to plan for in the future. Your financial advisor does it, right? Well, over the past hundred years, if you invested in the stock market, you know what the last hundred years is, folks? If we took the entire time that human beings have been on the planet, it's a tiny piece compared to the life of the planet. But let's forget about the planet's life and just talk about humanity's life right now. And we said we're going to condense the entire time human beings, from the very first human being to today, into a single human lifetime. In a hundred years of that time span, you haven't had your umbilical cord yet, you ain't been smacked on the ass yet, you're barely out of the birth canal. You're a sloppy, wet, bloody mess new babe into the world, haven't even been handed over to your mother yet, haven't had 
haven't been hung upside down and smacked in the butt, haven't had the, the afterbirth cleared from your mouth and so you can breathe yet. That's what a hundred years is in the history of mankind. It's like hiring a salesperson who for ten years has done a great job and then judging his performance on the last five days. And this is how we're planning for the future. Well, oh, in the last hundred years, these are the things that happened. So what? It's important that we look at them. Because they're all part of the modern world. And we're living in this modern society. And times prior to that, most of this modernization didn't exist. Let's go 200 years. Now we take the, you know, the biggest part of the Industrial Revolution in with us. We take, we're almost far enough back to take in the foundation of America as a, as a nation. Let's just go 300 years back. So now we're going to colonial times and into the formation of America as a society. We're at 300 years. Now we go back 400 years. Now we're going over to the first real buildup of people coming to America from Europe. Right? We're, we're not just showing up, but showing up and staying and building something. We go back 450 years, we're at the very genesis of that. We're back to around 1629 when the pilgrims came. And there were some people before that. So let's go back 500 years. We go back to where people were just starting to come here and kind of touch it like capture the flag and go home with some stuff. 500 years. And we go back to our concept of taking the entire existence of humanity and making one human lifetime out of it. Okay, the cord's been cut, you've been slapped on the ass, you've been handed to your mama. But that 500 years is still an infant. And what has happened in that 500 years? How has the world changed in that 500 years? And in our arrogance, do we think when we're at a point in time We have more people than ever before, more problems than ever before, heavier resource utilization than ever before, that we're not going to experience massive shifts. And do we think that the one nation that's done the best, that's run at the front of the pack for the last 100, 150 years, can just stay there forever or even for our lifetimes? The world is going to change. I can't tell you exactly how, but I can tell you some things that make me feel this way. Number one is China. I think China is the next leader of the world economically. Right? It doesn't mean that what they're doing is better than us. But what they're doing right now in reality economically is smarter than us. I don't want to go too deep into this because there's going to be a lot about China on Monday's listener feedback show. But here's the, here's the fundamental reality. If we put all the nation's balance sheets to the test right now, Uh, conventional wisdom would tell you the United States is the most impoverished nation in the world and China is the wealthiest. Because they have the greatest positive balance and we have the greatest negative balance. But the reality is we are the richest nation in the world today for one reason. Our global economy is based on debt. If you want to be rich in a society based on debt, you have to have the most debt. That doesn't mean you can't do really well, really, really well, by not having any debt at all and being rich in commodities and rich in stuff. This is just like if you go look at your neighbor who maxes out the Amex card every month and, and maxes out the Visa and the MasterCard and says, look, I get airline points, <laughs> right, and lives that lifestyle and drives three cars that are all financed and bought more home than he can afford and barely stays above the waterline, they'll look wealthier than you. But the reality is there's no real material wealth there. It's all debt-based. But in our society, if somebody comes from the outside and looks at you and looks at them, they'll think they're far better off than you if you're driving a 10-year-old car. Your house is paid for. But you have this huge stockpile of cash and stuff. So in our society today, even though we look so bad, there's no. I just published this list that's on the CIA's website of the balance sheets of all the nations in the world. We come in last place. We owe more money than the, the, the five countries above us put together. But that is wealth in our society. So what is everybody out there saying we need to do in you know kind of the Lou Rockwell world, in the Ron Paul world? We need to go back to a gold-based currency. I'm not saying we don't. I'm not saying we should. I'm saying that, you know, our yes, our current currency system is massively flawed being based on debt. But It's enabled everything that we have today to happen. And what I want to ask you is a question. If you have two people living in a society, 
And one is living in a debt-based society and acting like it and working with debt and being very wealthy in appearance and in daily living from that debt. And the other is leaving, leading a more meager existence but is leading a commodity-based life in a debt-based society. They're a saver. They don't go into debt. They buy what they can afford. And they accumulate wealth in the form of cash or gold or silver or anything. And they stick to real wealth versus debt-based wealth. If that society shifts and says, okay, from now on we're going to stop doing this stupidity and we're going to go to a gold-backed currency, which one of them benefits and which one suffers? Okay. <laughs> now, anybody out there with a modicum of common sense would say, the guy that's been storing away wealth, saving some gold and silver, buying real stuff, owns what he owns, is going to benefit in that. And the person living on debt is going to really get hurt. The nation's been living that way. And the Chinese have been living the other way, folks. You know, it used to be illegal to own silver in China. They recently passed a law that said all our citizens can own silver now. Go buy, And said, go do it. Go buy It wasn't just like in, in the 70s where the U.S. decided, yeah, it's okay to own gold again. They said, okay, if you want to buy gold, you can. Here, now here's, here's, our, here's your monopoly money. No, the Chinese said, you guys can own silver, and we want you to take your monopoly money and go buy silver. Do it. This is a directive. big part of what drove the silver market and what continues to drive the silver market. It's one of the underlying fundamentals of the silver market continuing to increase in value. So the Chinese are saying, as a nation, we're going to hold real wealth. We're going to buy mining operations and agricultural operations in, in, in Africa and in other parts of the world where we can. We're going to create trade agreements that use our currency and the other nation's currency so we can do direct exchange outside of the dollar. But we're going we're gonna to put real assets on our balance sheet. And they've done that to the tune of becoming, asset-wise, the wealthiest nation on the planet. And then they said, you know what? We have over a billion people. If everybody does a little bit, that's a lot. So let's encourage the same behavior in our citizens. I'm not saying they're great guys. I'm not saying I want to go live there. Don't misunderstand that. I'm talking about the pure economics of the play in the global marketplace. And what have we been told in America? On 9-11, George Bush, well not on 9-11, shortly after 9-11, Americans were saying, what can we do? We've been hurt. What can we do? And what did George Bush tell us to do? Go shop. And when the economy faltered, what did the government do? Borrowed and spent and gave. Here's money, go spend it. We're going to spend our money, here's some more money for you, go spend it. We have continued with the reckless behavior because we believe, we believe as a nation and as a collective group of nations, because folks, Canada, Australia, European Union, the United Kingdom, all of these nations have their collective heads up each other's ass believing that they can control this thing forever. That, that they are the chess players in, in nations like Brazil and Russia and India and China are the pieces on the board. The pieces have come to life. They've, they've fought for themselves and they've started to do things for themselves. And they've started to actually play the freaking game. Said, so I'm not going to go to that square right there. I'm going to go to this square over here and kill you, figuratively. So we have a nation like China completely investing itself in commodities and getting as far away from debt as it can, while the nation that's supposed to be the wealthiest nation is climbing greater and greater in debt. We have cries that are finally starting to be listened to about going back to a commodity-based currency system. If we do that, the world does that. If the world does that, we become the poorest nation in the world on some levels overnight. Gold bugs, do you understand that? I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that's what happens. Now, the reality is we won't be the poorest nation in the world because we have too much stuff. There's plenty of stuff here. There's plenty of resources here. We can fix it. But the status level in the world is gone. Any advantage, even if we kept the dollar as the world currency standard, when we go to a gold standard, is meaningless. Because if your currency's good for gold, my currency's gold, his currency's gold, right? Doesn't matter who we, who we take. Doesn't matter what we take. We're effectively trading gold. So there's no way that we can easily manipulate things on the global standard anymore. What does that mean for us? Let's look at some other things that are going on right now. Everybody freaked out about Fukushima, and I'm still telling you, don't freak out about Fukushima. Did you know there's another nuclear plant in Japan that's had a crisis going on for almost a year? 
Yep. You know what they're trying to do there? They're trying to take fuel that's already been used and repurpose it and use it again. Um, that's one of the things that when you talk about peak, uh, peak energy, uh, the anti-peak people will tell you, oh, see, we can reuse the fuel. Well, it's not working out so well, and they've got this big problem over there. I won't go deep into it today, but just let, let's say that it's not as bad as Fukushima, but it could be. Did you know there's two nuclear power plants in the United States right now with problems? Because they're being flooded. They're in Can Nebraska? Nebraska. Now, one, the tenors are going nuts about and saying that there's a melt-through in the core and all, and it's not that bad of a problem. Why? Because it was being refueled, and it's pretty much empty. So it's just the facility itself. But the other one, well, the other one holds the spent fuel rods for every nuclear reactor in the state. I don't think most people understand how a fuel rod works in a nuclear uh, power plant, but after it's been used, it stays very, very hot for a very, very long time, and it's very, very dangerous. So it has to be put in a tank and constantly cooled until eventually it cools down to where it can be disposed of, or in the case of the Japanese, attempted to be recycled. So... Uh, what's going on there? We really don't know. The media hasn't been talking about it. I put out a thing that said there was a media blackout on it on Facebook yesterday. Um, it, it turns out some things that were in that article were not true. But the blackout part I don't think is the case. I think it is true. Because we haven't heard much about this from mainstream media at all. Little pieces of it here and there. But this should be major news. Not whether or not Sarah Palin's going to run for president. Okay, Not that some kid took a joyride. Some eight-year-old kid jumped in a car in his socks and took a joyride for 20 miles. Not Casey freaking Anthony. The fact that there's a nuclear plant in the center of the United States that's having a severe event, we need to be looking at this. But why do I even bring this up? Am I saying, run out by the potassium iodide now? The death cloud's coming. No, no. But what is this going to do when we bring these four together? Right, We already knew there was going to be a major, major push against nuclear power when Fukushima happened. But now we've got Fukushima. Now we've got this information coming out about this other nuclear facility in the southern part of, of, uh, of Japan that has absolutely nothing to do with a natural disaster, by the way. It's just a screwing itself. I, I don't have the full details on it yet. But basically, they're having a really, really bad problem there. Right? They haven't had anything released or blow up or on fire, but they're having a reaction they can't really control. And then we have these two facilities being flooded in the United States of America. So what if we build just two or three less nuclear facilities globally? What is that? You know, how much energy do we have to replace with that? How much more do we have to invest in alternative energy sources to that? How much more coal do we have to burn and, 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 and damage our planet in a lot of ways? I do not believe in man-made global warming. I think it's complete nonsense. I do believe in pollution. All right. I believe that removing mountaintops to get coal out of the ground is a stupid-ass thing to do. Strip mining to get coal out of the ground is a horrible rape-of-the-land thing to do. Dropping mercury into our oceans and our groundwater, which comes from, more from the coal industry, a terrible, terrible thing to do. The exhaust that comes from a coal plant, clean coal, there's no such thing as clean coal. The sludge, the sulfur oxide that happens to the groundwater around it, it's one of the most disgusting, damaging fuels And it's the number one thing that produces electricity in the United States and in our, you know, our, our fellow nation of China. How much damage does that do? All around the world, we have crops that are that are, you know, basically just inching tiny increments ahead in their production. All this big uptick promised by genetically modified crap hasn't happened. Let's leave the GMOs out of it today. Genetically modified stuff. Let's not even go there. Let's just look at the fundamental reality. Our water resources, from an agricultural standpoint, are being depleted to a point where they cannot be restored. We are pulling water out of fossil aquifers that took millions of years to fill. There may not be a human being walking the planet by the time they're ever full again, if they're ever full again. And we're depleting those resources. That water's not coming back. What are we going to do when it's gone? That doesn't mean that I'm saying you're going to turn the water on your faucet and nothing's going to come out. Some places it could happen. But in general, there's enough water to drink. What about to grow food? Do you, do you realize how much irrigation we use to grow food? Is anybody in that industry really working on, other than let's Frankenstein the, the genes, a way to grow with less water? There's ways to do it. We know how to do it. 
There's ways where we can recycle the water in a closed system. But we're not doing it yet. It means we need to learn how to do it for ourselves. We're living in a society where literally every single thing we depend on is becoming more scarce and becoming more difficult to acquire and becoming more desired by other people who previously did not compete for it. And I think this is the big one that people don't understand. When nations like China and India and Brazil with very high populations begin to become wealthy, it's a new there are three new players in the game. And it's not just about how much of soybeans or how much of gold or how much of anything or oil or cotton or fish or beef or rice or anything. How much of anything is available, how many people want it and can buy it. What does that do to its price and its availability? And things that we've taken for granted in this nation begin to not be so easy to acquire along with the status of the nation in decline. These things are coming. Every, I'm beginning to scare myself. Everything that I've told you for the past three and a half years, almost four years now. Oh my God, four years. I, I think I just realized that. But everything I've told you in this time frame is beginning to come to pass. I've said things like, as the nations like like China and Brazil and India and Russia, as their currency strengthen against the dollar, because it's so easy to buy land in America, those nations will come in and literally start to buy up the country. Well, the Brazilians are buying the hell out of condos in Miami right now. They don't care that the market sucks. You know, they don't care that it's hard to get a mortgage. They don't care that you know you can't flip the condo in three months and double your money anymore. They don't give a shit. They want a condo in Miami. So they come in, they convert their money over to dollars, they get a lot more dollars than they used to, and they're buying the damn things for pennies on the dollar of what they sold for three years ago. And they're not trying to make money off it, they're buying a condo, they're coming here, they're hanging out. You know? Chinese are doing the same thing in California right now. Buying up real estate, bam, bam, just like I said they would. So a couple cities, a couple cities now are starting to default. Can't pay the bills. Just can't do it. Blame the union. Blame the politician. Blame whoever you want. Doesn't matter. And this is what these people in these debates do not understand. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. We either fix it now or we're totally screwed tomorrow. And they're not going to fix it. They're going to keep arguing about it, playing games, blaming each other until the city collapses upon itself. So a few of the municipalities have begun to fall. You want to know what I think about the stock market right now? I think there's a year to a year and a half of upside in the market yet before the second real fall. You're taking a gamble if you take my advice. Or if you're worried about your money at all, get it out now. Okay, I'm not doing it all yet. Pay very close attention to what's going on. Ensure your investments with something called a stop loss. And most of you in 401ks and IRAs don't have... Well, IRAs you would, but in 401ks you probably don't have this as an option. But a stop loss is I'm willing to lose X on this, on this stock or fund. And when it hits that number, sell it. You have to watch it yourself and, and say, if it's 10% loss, when it hits that, I'm selling it myself. I'm going to convert it to cash or, or a bond or whatever, whatever the safest investment you have in there. I've also heard from people recently who have 401ks, couple people, where there is no cash option in the 401k. If that is you, you need to go down to your human resources department today, and you need to demand to know why, and you need to demand and insist that they give you that option. And if the plan provider you have will not provide it to immediately find a new one and tell them you're going to do so, and they'll shit one. There should be a cash equivalency option in every 401k. And I actually saw one for a fact that did not have it. It is bullshit. And you need to say to human resources, if you're not going to do this for me, then I need you to make it possible for me to withdraw my 401k into an IRA, even though I'm not leaving my employment. You need to do it sensibly. You don't need to get your ass fired over this. Uh, but if it takes bringing the entire company with you, then maybe that's what you need to do. You need to judge this for yourself, but it's it's a damn shame. But uh, a side note there, but seriously, my view on the market right now is there's a lot of bullshit that's going to cycle through here, a lot of things that have been planned to help get the current ass clown reelected, and if they get pulled off properly, the market will hit 
higher than it hit before. I called the top of 12.5. We hit 12.5. It receded from there. I should be saying that's it, but I still think there's so much liquidity out there. There's so much profit out there right now. Um, it's all false, but it's, it's, it's real profit in the, in the hands of the companies that made it. Uh, there's going to be big dividends paid uh, by the dividend-producing stocks in, in the next quarter. Um, and in the coming quarters thereafter, there's a lot of money that's been made. So um, my my view is you have a year to a year and a half to ride the market before we see a real, real bad collapse in America. But again, you have to make your own decision there. But all of these things are coming to a point where there has to be a shift. And, have, and you know what happens after those 18 months? I, this is what I think happens. Uh, multiple cities, this is what I was telling you, kind of everything I've said has, has started to happen. Multiple cities continue to default. As they default, they become desperate. They cry to the states. The states pull in and bail them out until they can't do it anymore. Then states cry to the federal government, we're about to go under. We've propped up the cities. You have to prop us up. We're too big to fail. On some level, the federal government can do this, but for only so long. You can only print so much money. Uh, Bernanke just came out and said, hey, I've, I've done what I can. I'm done. Ben Bernanke basically said, on stimulating the economy, I'm finished. Interest rates are as low as they can go. I've bought as much phony debt up as I can with fake debt buying. i printed as much money as I can. You guys gotta, you guys gotta make it work now. <laughs> so, that game has kind of reached its end. Uh, where, where Japan was, you know, eight years ago. Before they went into their sideways skid. But as these cities begin to default, the states begin to default, eventually, the U.S. defaults. We're about to get to a point where either we raise the debt ceiling or we default. And we'll raise the debt ceiling. That's going to happen. Uh, they'll say there'll be real cuts. There'll be probably big cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Uh, the administration will say that its hands were tied and it wasn't its fault and that the evil Republicans did it. And it will probably successfully be used by Barack Obama to retain the office of president for another four years. At which time he won't give a shit how bad the economy gets because it'll just be an excuse for more and more of his emergency programs to take away more and more liberty and impose more and more of what in their minds is social justice. More bad times for America. This, this is what I really think is going to happen. I think there's one guy on the Republican side whose hat's not in the ring yet that could actually win. And I don't know if he's going to play the game. I think he's watching these things and determining whether this is his year or four years from now is his year, and that's Rick Perry. And I don't like him at all. I think he's a scumbag snake. I can't stand the man. If I could punch him in the face right now, I would do it. He's a, just a complete sleaze. But uh, the national media loves him. The national Tea Party type people love him. Uh, they see He was endorsed by Sarah Palin. They see him as a states' rights advocate. And the guy's really a complete sleazeball. He really is. Uh, we had a, a law on the verge of being passed by the Senate in Texas that cleared the House unanimously that was going to force TSA to stop putting their hands down the pants of children in the state of Texas. And uh, it was going to pass the Senate, and Perry sent one of his boys into the Senate, one of the state senators, and undermined the bill, and then stood back and said, well, I would have signed it if it would have come through. This is the guy whose uh, chief of staff goes to work for Merck and a few weeks later signs an executive order requiring the Gardasil vaccine for all girls 14 and older in the state of Texas, who just happens to be made by Merck. Only executive order the guy signed in that entire term. Okay, so this is the guy that's, you know, it's either going to be Obama or this guy. There's nobody in the Republican Party right now that could beat Obama. I know you think there is. But unless the economy completely falls apart, unless they don't hold it together for another 18 months, that guy's your president for another four years. I'm not happy about that either. So, <laughs> that doesn't even matter, though. That's my whole point in even bringing up the election. It doesn't even matter. These things are done. The checks are written. We can't cash them. And as the states begin to default, eventually the nation defaults. And when the nation defaults, the rest of the world who sees this coming, and I told you this, guys, I told you this back in 2008 when the first stock market crash happened. They won't leave us yet. They can't. They're on the boat with us. They're tied to us. China, Russia, India, Europe, all of these nations, they're going to start unassing their attachment to us as much as they can so that when our ship goes down, they can stay afloat. And when it comes around the second time, that's when they'll go, whoops, sorry, uh, you're on your own. That's what's coming. And what happens to us then? I'm not going to tell you that I know. But what I see is a shift in the global currency system. 
going to some sort of a commodity-backed currency, probably at least backed in portion by gold as a, as a way to control inflation. I see all the gold bugs in the United States going, Yay! Ah, oh, crap. I didn't understand what this was really going to do to me. That's, that's what I see happening. Because it doesn't matter how much wealth you have if the entire nation around you crumbles. And everything that you've relied on is no longer available to you, or at least not as affordable as it was. And I see food shortages. I don't know exactly how bad. I see energy shortages. I see energy costs increase running away. And I see a point where people are going to have a choice. Continue to play the society game and kill yourself to maintain your standard of living. Work the same and step back at least one standard, which means if you're upper middle class, you're going to middle class. If you're middle class, you're going to lower middle class. If you're lower middle class, you're going to poor. You'll have money, but your lifestyle will drop at least one level unless you shore up your own self-production. And if I'm wrong about that, it doesn't matter. Some major series of shifts are coming. And what I'm trying to say on this show all the time is if you can control some portion of your own energy production, your own food production, your own economy, right? You have your own source of income or you have your own wealth saved and you have it preserved well. If you have your shelter taken care of instead of mortgage to the hilt. If you do these things... When the shifts occur, instead of sitting there with your eyes just wide open, with the wave rolling over you, not knowing what the hell to do, you can sit back, relax, think. Panic always results in failure. You can think instead of panic. You can look for opportunity, and as these shifts come, you can actually prosper. Trust me, there were Romans who when the civilization of Rome fell became wealthy. I don't know who they are. I don't care who they are. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, somebody did well as the society crumbled around it. There were Greeks that did it. I'll bet you there were some Aztecs that came out the other end of that and had something really beneficial uh, happen for them. Maybe they collaborated and assimilated. And in every case where a society has crumbled or massively shifted from a place of prominence to a, a lower position globally, or in the known world at other times, there's been people that have benefited. And there's been people that really didn't care. And I think it's fine to be a person that doesn't really care. Not before, but after. I think it's fine to be a person that, that benefits. I think it sucks to be a person that's victimized by this. And that's why I do this show every day, because these shifts are coming, even if I'm 100% wrong about how these shifts are coming. And I want to finish up with a concept that I, I just want to bounce off you guys today, 2012. Um, I don't want you to think I've gone over and become a tin hatter. I, I haven't. But, of course, another great civilization that we don't hear from anymore, the Mayans, had a calendar. A calendar based on galactic cycles. That's, that's really what this, this calendar is based on. We based our calendar on the sun going around, or the, the earth, the sun going, the earth going around the sun, right? Well, they based their calendar on our system going around the galaxy. That's how much more advanced they were than us when it comes to creating a calendar. These Stone Age people, actually, they, I think they were uh, copper and bronze age people, but. We would look at them as Stone Age. We really would. That's how we would see them today. These old ancient people, they didn't have electricity, you know, they didn't have running water, and, you know, I mean, come on. They're just these guys building these pyramid looking things in the jungle and sacrificing people and cutting their hearts out. Well, they built this calendar and they were able to observe because you could actually see the stars then, the way that everything moved which is the foundations of, of physics, by the way. The entire foundation of the science of physics revolved around the first people that observed that not just were there stars, but there were planets, and they moved differently. And that, that evolved into cosmology and physics. So these guys were pretty advanced folks, so they were able to look up there and figure this stuff out and create this calendar. And, of course, their calendar ends December 21st, 2012. And this has led a lot of nut jobs to be out there trying to sell you on being ready for the end of the world as we know it. 
in the conventional apocalyptic concept. And people have said that Nostradamus picked the same date. Well, that's people that go through his quatrains and bend and shave and twist and make. I can make anything. I can make a book about Elmo say the world's going to end if I twist it far enough. Okay, look, it's prophetic. Elmo's predicting the end of the world. But there's been a seed planted in society. See, there's a a large segment of society that when they hear about Maya 2012, go. I don't care. I don't care at all. I don't even... Yeah, whatever. And then there's the nut jobs. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh. And I'm going to be buying their shit on Craigslist and eBay when it's over. But there's millions and millions and millions and millions of people, probably a billion total, that have heard this and thought this much. Something's probably going to happen. There'll probably be some kind of a change. And when you plant that little seed in the mind of a billion people, there will be a change. It probably won't be specifically on December 21st, but 2012 will be a year of great change, a great shift. On this show, we had a caller that suggested it, and I reinforced it. Um, he said, you know, why don't you make December 21st your day that you finish getting out of debt, or the day that you achieve some level of... So society has this thought. Change that's positive for one is often negative for another. If everybody in America listened to me, everybody in America listened to me, it would be bad for the politicians, wouldn't it? If 55% of the people in America listened to me and did the things that I recommend, the other 45 would actually, for a time, really have it hard. When you guys said, you know, I had enough of this crap and you liquidated your stocks, what would that do to the market, 55% of Americans? You paid off all your debt and you wouldn't take any more? you got to start thinking that even the beneficial things can do harm to the people that aren't on board with them. So some change is going to happen that's related to that date. Even if that date doesn't mean a damn thing. You know how I know that? Because there's a change every year. Right? I haven't all of a sudden found a crystal ball or found something new. 2011 has been a year of great change. Look what happened in Japan. Look at the tornado rampage of 2011 so far. 2010, 2009, 2008. All these years have a great massive shifts. So these people that claim to be able to see the future, all they do is tell you the story of the past, say it will happen again, then it does, and then they look like geniuses. I'm saying, why don't we all start figuring this out? Why don't we all start understanding that the story of the past is the story of the future? You know, they tell you when you're a little kid, you have to study history because if we don't learn the mistakes of the past, we're doomed to repeat them. That's stupid. You know what you should be telling kids? We study history because we need to see the mistakes in the past because some dumbass is going to do it again and you need to be prepared to deal with it. That's honesty. Every dumbass thing that somebody's done in our past will be done or will attempted to be done again. And we'll have some level of success. And somebody somewhere is going to have to deal with it. Think about that. And think about what it could mean if the technology that we have today existed in 1935, there probably wouldn't be a Jewish human being on the planet. Think about that. So what happens if that type of thing ever does happen again? I'm not saying it's going to. I'm saying something like it will. Somewhere. Remember the ethnic cleansing of the 90s in, in Europe? That's the same thing in a different scale, in a different way, by a different group of people. There's ethnic cleansing going on in Africa today. What happens if somebody with technology ever decides it's time to ethnically cleanse? Again, not saying that that's exactly what's going to happen. All I'm saying is anything you can look to the past and see occurred. Something like it will occur in the future. It'll be different. The results will be different in a way. And in some ways they'll be constant and the same because we're human beings. We have certain rules. There's certain ways we live. There's certain needs that we have. There's certain desires that we have. So the only thing we can do is prepare. And I think what we need to understand when it comes to preparedness is really our priorities and how they should work. 
And then I want you to look at how society works and see how we have this on its head. When we get ready to start being prepared for disaster or change or shift, the first thing we need to focus on is what? Our needs. Five primary survival needs. Food, shelter, water, energy, security. We have to focus on those five. If you've never heard that before, write them the hell down. Food, shelter, water, energy, security. Those five we have to have. Those are needs. So the first thing we do is we focus on those. The second thing we have to do is we have to focus on our wants. So we need food, but I want chocolate. <laughs> All right? You know, we need to be able to cook, and I can do that with fire, but I prefer to have a very large stockpile of propane and a great gas stove that will run no matter what. Right? These are wants. I don't really need them, but I want them, and I have a high degree of want for them, and they're critical to my quality of life. And third, we focus on luxury. Right? I don't need an F-350 Ford pickup truck, right? but I have one. Because I like it. It's nice. It's big. It makes noise. It's And I go down the road and I feel good about driving it. I like it. It's a luxury. It comes last. And even for the shift, it comes last. Because, hey, it can run biodiesel. <laughs> I mean, I can, you know, it, it may have real applications and it should hit the fan scenario. It's big. It's tough. It may get me through something, but it's still a luxury. Now, think about how society works today. Now, on some level, needs are addressed first because if you don't address your needs first, you die. But needs are addressed a la carte. And what I mean by that is when somebody goes off and gets their first real job and finally grows up and moves out of the house, which used to be at like 20 and now is at like 35, when they do that, they take that step. They go to the grocery store and they buy some food or they go out to eat and they feed themselves. So they take care of food. Uh, they phone up the electric company and say, hey, I'd like power. Here's your deposit. And they turn the power on so they take care of energy. Uh, security kind of takes care of itself, but they do a little bit of that because generally people try to move to the best neighborhood they can afford with the best police and security inherent to the area. So security gets addressed a little bit. Water, they pay the company or they have a well put in. If they live somewhere around, they turn the water on, the water comes out, you know. And, uh, you know, pretty much the, the basic needs of society people take care of, but they do it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, of course, you know, shelter, they get a place to live. That very action itself takes care of the shelter. But they have to pay for the shelter monthly. They have to pay for the water monthly, unless they, they were forced into buying a well with some level of self-sufficiency. They pay the electric bill monthly. They pay the food bill. Some people pay the food bill daily, right? And the security, they really don't even focus on other than when they make that initial decision about where they're going to live. And then they immediately go and shift every bit of their focus right past even the want to the luxury. I want a nice car. I want the latest smartphone. I want the hottest computer, whatever it is. Having those things isn't bad. Luxuries have a place in our life. But if we skip over solidifying the needs first... Defining the wants second and adding the luxuries in as we use the wants and the needs to build wealth with, we make ourselves vulnerable. And when the shift comes, you're like that little bug that's all happy, flying along, and here comes Jack and his F-350, and your yellow guts across the windshield. That's what the economy did to people in 2008, 2009, 2010, and continues to do today. People are losing jobs still today. That's what happens to your account balance. Beep. Right? That's what happened to that job that would you'd never lose that job. That's what happened to that guaranteed raise in your retirement that the state had to give you. That's what happened to food prices. And that just keeps happening and happening and happening. And people don't learn, unlike the bug... When you collide with that windshield in this figurative world, you're not yellow guts. You're disoriented. You get back up. And then what do people do? Uh, my house is undervalued. I'm going to run away from it and go right back into a luxury-based lifestyle. Again, I'm not bashing luxury. I'm just saying, don't you think it makes sense 
to have the needs prepared for for at least 30 days before we really begin to focus on that smartphone. I have one. I have an iPhone. Not putting the iPhone down. It's a cool thing. But there's no way I would buy an iPhone before I could at least feed myself for a couple freaking weeks. For God's sakes. Or at least have enough money that I could pay my rent next month if I didn't have my job. Or pay my mortgage next month if I didn't have my job. Make my car payment next month if I didn't have my job. But society lives in this reckless manner. And they're going to continue to live in this reckless manner. And you can't stop them. You can't prevent them. And we won't change it. We won't change it ourselves. We'll be a part of the change. We'll be a part of the change as a community by living smart. So as these shifts begin to smack people, we just say we're not participating like, like, like that. Hey, look, yeah, property went down. I bought something. Yeah, all right? I mean, these will be conversations that if you're smart, you'll be having with the people around you getting mowed over. And along the way, some will choose to adapt and some will choose to get rolled over and cry. And after the disasters occurred, we go in and we help and we help pick people up but we don't fix it for them. We help them get back on their feet. We can't do that unless we're prepared for the shift. These are shifts that are coming. The food supply, the, the global economic structure, the social structure, the availability of energy, the availability of commodities and goods. And it's not about them not being available. It's about what they're going to cost you or how long it will take to get them. The exact form, I cannot tell you. Only the constant that the shift is coming. And it's going to be different and the same. You can look to history and you can see examples of what it looked like and I can tell you that it will be more dramatic, more drastic, and more impactful than any time in history because there's more people to be impacted and there's more dependence on technology and government and society than there ever has been in the history of the world. And as technology fails, as society structure fails, as the economics fail, the dependence becomes more apparent and the results become more severe. So take this message seriously. If you're a new listener, go back and listen to prior editions of the show and, and learn from them. Learn what to do. We've, we've given you all the information that you need, and we'll keep doing it. And we'll keep bringing you new information, and I have such an optimistic view. You would think after hearing all this that this guy's just a doomer and a gloomer. No. I think that there's amazing things in our future. But there were amazing things in the future of a Roman citizen or a Greek citizen. There were amazing things in the future of every great society and the members of that society. But so few of them ever partook. It was their children or children's children that eventually partook in the, the great things that came from advancement. And the people in the middle suffered because they were not prepared. And it took a generation or two to adapt. And some cultures have never adapted. Never adapted. The time to be prepared is yesterday. But if you haven't started, the time to be prepared is tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.